0: Hey everyone, welcome to Hard Fork Live, a podcast for everything Web3. I am Castra, your host. And today I had the pleasure of talking to Daniel. Daniel is a serial entrepreneur. He has been a coder and these days he is pretty active in the world of YouTube and Twitter. He writes really, really well about what Web3 means, what NFTs mean. He... I think one of the ways that he gets differentiated from other writers is his excellent use of metaphors. He just makes it super simple to understand these complicated concepts through simple examples, through really well thought out uh, metaphors. And on top of that, he is also pretty active in the usage of NFTs in practical ways. And one of the ways he's promoting this is through a company that he has started very recently, it's called Pleasure, and they have the goal of helping startups raise equity funding via NFTs. And that was one of the main topics we touched upon in this episode to understand how NFTs are really suitable to be what we call Share 2.0. Also, we touched upon Daniel's experience as being a serial entrepreneur, he has had Startups that reach to product market fit. So we're going to go deeper into those aspects and understand what differentiates good entrepreneurs from the people who cannot make it. So if you're an entrepreneur, if you're a founder, if you're building something in the world of Web3, I think this episode is going to be really valuable for you. But before we jump in, a few words from our sponsors. Flirt.dev is the Web3 platform that allows you to build sell and scale in Web3. It Flare's NFT tiered sales, credit card and cross chain payment. You can increase your NFT sales by at least 50% because you can allow your users to pay for your NFT, via credit card or any crypto they have in their wallet and also connect their wallet. Or if they don't have one already, Flare is going to create a custodial wallet on behalf of them. Also with Flare's scalable smart contracts, relayer and indexing API, you can read, write and build on blockchain in a scalable way. So whether you're a dApp, a game or a Web2 company that wants to build on blockchain, Flare has you covered for the long run. So definitely check flare.dev. That is F-L-A-I-R.dev. Hey, Daniel. Hello, so, with us. How, are you, how are you doing, man?
1: I'm doing good. Uh, it's a Saturday and I've already reworked our new website and gone to the gym, which is very productive for a Saturday morning. Uh, at least I think so.
0: That's, that's a productive Saturday.
1: <laughs> yeah, how, how are so you doing?
0: Great. I'm doing all right. I also went to the gym today. I did some shopping as well, and I'm ready for our really cool conversation. Um, so before diving deep into um our conversation, I really love to hear about your background and what was made you interested into entering the world of Web3. hmm
1: Okay. Well, um I mean that's uh it's like okay, so let's start with I I let's start with the beginning. Uh my first jobs were at Accenture and in financial services. I worked at banks uh, as a consultant like mostly technology consultant but also like some process stuff and that that kind of stuff and i at some point i realized that i hated the corporate world and i didn't want to work there um and i found a way out which was that one of my friends was starting a business um and i joined that business as a as a co-founder and i thought that's it you know i'm gonna be successful Uh, everything's gonna be great now in six months i'm gonna buy myself a penthouse in the middle of town and it didn't quite happen that way instead. Um, it was more uh, like that business crashed and burned in about three to six months or so uh, But luckily I jumped into another business. that was started by another friend who was actually the brother of my first co-founder. So uh, a, bit, 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 uh, uh, a Bit of overlap um, and that one took a lot longer to crash and burn. Uh, it took three years to get to sort of slowly drive into the ground um, and then Somehow I managed to find another person to start a business with um, my girlfriend at the time, who uh, is now my wife. And we started like actually had this idea of, uh, helping tech companies with government funding. And I, uh, she showed me like what she thought needed to be done. I was like, well, if you can get the clients, I can get, get the work done. And she was like, well, if you can get the work done I can get the clients. And we somehow bootstrapped a basically a specialist tax consultancy from nothing, with no credentials in uh, in anything, and no trading history, nothing. Just her incredible sales drive, and my ability to just you know make things happen like well enough that we get to the next step. And it's now so that's what's called GrandTree, and it's still operating. It's uh, employs about 40 people at this point. It's a profitable company that serves hundreds of uh, companies a year, uh, helping them with their government funding. And in 2019, I decided I needed to take a break from that. And uh, it felt like the way I look at it is like I I was quite deep into a therapy process, effectively. And it felt like I was like the company was a projection of all my shadows, all these unresolved issues that I'd piled up over the years. And they went into the structure of the company. And um, I felt like I could heal those things, but not while working there. Uh, I needed some distance from the company. It was too much to try and do that while in an environment that I created, which reflected all my problems to me. So I left uh, in 2019. I went on a bit of a journey that year. I did six tantra trainings and uh, two burns and a road trip down the south of France for a month with my wife and uh, Vipassana, 10-day silent meditation, and also a month of uh, kind of self-imposed lockdown um before it was popular uh in in Portugal in a kind of bungalow in the in in the in, in the wilderness in Portugal and um that was really good but it still wasn't enough and it took still like i mean i thought i came back to london i was like okay i'm ready to get some stuff done but um the um, uh the universe had different plans covid happened whatever i was trying to do got swept off the table and then I tried to do something that had been, I thought had been a passion for all my life, which was writing fiction. And I'd give it a really good try. And then I realized I don't actually enjoy doing it. It's not what I want to do. And it was very strange because it felt like you know, that's what I'm supposed to be doing. All the while while I was doing all these other things and being quite successful at them, I always felt guilty that I'm not doing writing, which is what I should be doing. And at that point, I realized, actually, I don't want to do writing. That's not my desire. Um, and there was a kind of period at that point where I... Uh, stopped doing anything and for a few months I I just sat on the couch and did nothing and I'm very grateful that I'm in a financial position where I could afford to do that Uh, not everybody can but as a result I sort of learned to tell the difference between a sort of like feeling of I should be doing this which feels like it comes from sort of like from the back of my head and a desire to do something which comes more from inside from within and the first desire that came up was to play Diablo three, and I was like, "Well, okay, fine, whatever. If I can, if I can be okay sitting on the couch, I can be okay playing Diablo three as well." And then that lasted like a day I got bored immediately. And then I played StarCraft two for a couple of weeks until I tried an online game. Like I, I practiced the build order for for ages, and then I tried an online game, and it was so stressful. I was like, "I don't want it. I don't enjoy that. That's not nice. I don't want to be doing that." So I stopped that, and then I picked up miniature painting for six months. And then singing and playing the guitar, and then I started to get this desire that oh, I quite like to have more money in my life because I can buy a bigger house and that kind of stuff. And it was very different from before because it was a desire, it was a positive desire rather than a fear of not, of not having enough. It was like I want more of this in my life. And at the time, I was uh, I thought about starting another business, and I was like, "That's so much work. I don't, I, I can't be bothered to do this right now." So I parked that and I thought, well, you know, people who have already made some money, like one of the things they seem to do is like invest it. So this crypto thing is doing quite well. It's making lots of noise. Uh, My wife seems to have made some smart crypto investment. Let me have a look at what's going on there and see if maybe I'm good at that as well. Maybe I can make some money that way. So I put in uh, about a thousand pounds into Binance. And uh, that was in mid-May 2021. And a week later, the market crashed by 50% which was a good good timing actually because it taught me that you know these things go down as well so i didn't take take too much risk um but then through the summer i was kind of trading the crypto markets and like without really knowing the difference between bitcoin and ethereum and cardano and all these things they were just numbers on the chart but then somebody kept telling me about nfts and at some point i started looking into nfts purely from a financial perspective and i bought uh, it was lazy lions was the first project that i bought into And I remember noticing at that point, like, there's something, like, I got a sense that there's something going on here. Um, There's something else that I've, I recognize the feeling, because I've had it um, a couple of times in my life. One, when I first encountered the internet, and the second time when I encountered Twitter in 2007. I felt like there's something, like, everybody else is dismissing this thing, but I think, like, there's something really cool here. And that was... Like NFT is where the, the um, uh the, the 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 thing that got me to dive into the rabbit hole and start researching Web3 and crypto and start to understand what is being built there and that yes, there is definitely something amazing being built there. Um so to summarize what got me into this, I followed my I learned to follow my desires, and my desires bit by bit led me to um try this 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 uh to, to buy an nft and then that led me to discover oh there's this amazing huge wave of innovation that's happening right now i know it because i've i've been through two of those now and this one i'm really well positioned to just have fun with it instead of being like the first one i was 15 i was in geneva i couldn't really do anything with that uh if i'd been 15 in silicon valley it would have been a different story but i was in geneva and the second one I was in uh, I was in London, but I was starting my my second business, and you know, there was all this kind of I was broke. It was not the right time to be trying to surf a huge wave of innovation so hopefully that's a useful that.
0: What an amazing journey like every step of it probably had you know a building block for the next one and I really want to focus on the first part i I was really interested like you mentioned like you started two startups and the third one kind of clicked can you just tell mm-hmm. me what what happened there was it you know the right team was it like the right skill like your wife uh, had the sales capability you had the technical capability what clicked there to make it like successful and the previous ones it wasn't like that
1: i i think i think there was um there was a lot of um i, just, I mean you know there's i don't know if you've heard this the saying uh, like it's a quote from tolstoy that uh, happy families are boring unhappy families are are interesting and startups always fail for a certain like random set of unique factors that make them fail and uh when they succeed is because everything has actually lined up perfectly and that's usually kind of boring in a way because it's like it everything was correct to help it help it succeed um mostly i would credit it to the fact that like i kind of look at um uh product market fit and like the order in which you do things to achieve product market fit, which is a very common uh, concept that entrepreneurs tend to care about. Well, does that succeed anyway. Um, and um, in the first startup, we built the product without even talking to customers. So, you know, product market fit was zero, basically. <laughs> we, we copied an existing product. We thought that would work. That didn't work. And like we didn't really have any customers. It was a complete failure. The second one. We did talk to customers right up front. We learned from the first one. Um, we had, in fact, architects using it was a construction collaboration tool. We had architects using it on real collaborate, uh, real construction projects, from like you know, three weeks from when we started coding. We built enough functionality already that they were using it to like to trade files around and stuff like that because they have a lot of files that they need to send around. Um, and um, unfortunately, uh, we only found out two years later that we fit the product to the wrong market. So we had enthusiastic users, very happy and so on, but they weren't willing to pay anything for it because it turns out architects don't like to pay recurring fees for anything. Uh, they see the value in the project, but you know, they, they, don't, they don't want to pay subscription fees. There are people in the construction industry who, who are okay to pay that. There's the, 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 the um, usually the main contractor who like manages all the other subcontractors that build the building. They're quite keen to have good document management because because they will save money by doing that. And they're willing to pay subscription fees on a project for that, but the architects, nope. So it was the wrong business model and we didn't manage to pivot to the to the, um, the main contractors in time. And we ran out of money because of some accounting error and like, so it, it died because of that. Um, the third one, I learned that um, you don't like one good approach, I think which one that I subscribe to now is to ensure real product market fit basically don't build anything unless it's necessary to get to the next step of product market fit like and one way that i, I put it is if, if you don't have a customer like banging down your door saying where is this thing don't build it i like, ideally somebody's somebody's already paid you for it and that's when you build it so that's that would be the ideal um, or um, you know you're like you know f- for example We've ju- I've just put together a website for this new business that I'm starting. Um, we started basically doing this a month and a half ago, um, but we didn't need a website for that time. It was not the important thing. You know, some people have this idea that, oh, starting a business means you need to come up with a name, re- re- uh, uh, register the business, uh, maybe make business cards, like put a website together. All that stuff doesn't matter. Like, what is the core of the business? What is the core service that's going to create what I call the loop, which is where you create something of value, you get it to a customer and they pay you. That's the important bit. And if a website is what's needed and at this point it is becoming needed for us because we want to launch a campaign on it in like two weeks. Um, so therefore we need a website up. Therefore it becomes needed. And therefore it's worth building, but that's because it is in, in the loop. So that would be, that that would be the main difference I think, um, is, um, the focusing on being sales driven rather than, um, uh, building what I think needs to be built.
0: In my head, I, I think that's such a golden thing. And I kind of, when you were explaining this, I was feeling it to my bones because I have made the first mistake so many times before that, you know, mm-hmm. you talk, don't talk to customers or for example, you graduate to the next step and you, you talk to a few customers but you don't understand it exactly. And you get excited and go build against something. You worry about, you know, branding, color name, all of that. But you don't have a contract, you don't have a paying customer, let's say. So mm. it's, it's the same issue again. So, yeah, it's, it's so important. It's
1: it's very sad because you've got to kind of um, um, like, you put all this effort to build something and then nobody uses it. It's just like such a bad feeling. It's one thing to put a lot of effort in, and then people are using it, and you're like, well, OK, I worked really hard, and some people are using that. But no, nobody ever used uh, Have you read The Lean Startup?
0: Yeah, it's kind of the same concept like that. Yeah,
1: away. Yeah, and he gives the example there of like uh, them building a whole chat integration tool. And then when they deployed it, nobody, not a single person clicked on the button to download it. And they were like, we could just have put the button up and find out for the price of putting a button up that nobody's going to click on it and save ourselves three months of dev time um so it's kind of the lean startup methodology but like applied with uh the kind of sales driven focus so until somebody's willing to like until somebody's already clicked on the button 15 times and is like i want to click on that button to pay you money for it don't build it
0: <laughs> don't build it Exactly. i think because i know that the rabbit hole is you go and build this for six months and then you don't iterate on it enough and for example even if you if even if there's a customer you need to say okay is that the decision maker are they gonna pay me? Is there enough market? And I think if you mm-hmm. stay that line and try to figure it out, then either you're gonna make it or you're gonna go to the next one much faster. Rather than try to waste your time for six months and then come back to it. So um,
1: yeah, and and it's important to also point out that like it looks like this is the fourth business that I start, and yet there's a kind of a bunch of ideas that I chose not to work on along along the way, or that didn't work out for some reason. Like um, back when I was starting to say, oh, maybe I, like, you know, I feel like I want more money. I had a couple of businesses ideas kicking around in my head and I thought about them and I was like, no, they're not, they're not worth all the effort. So I killed them myself without even bothering to do market research. I was like, I could probably, like there probably is demand and stuff, but I don't think it's worth it for me to build this business. It's gonna be a lot of work, not that much payoff, even if it does really well. So let's just kill that and then there were a couple of opportunities that came up one to start a vc fund and one to try it like i want to point out even started the work of setting up a a kind of web 3 vc fund like which would have been funded by nfts somehow um that was after i discovered nfts and i realized that there's no point in investing in anything except for web3 at this point um and um like things didn't quite click well for the first one it turned out that the person who was going to fund the vc fund the main limited partner uh, did not have the money that he claimed they had, which was hilarious. He just made up having a billion dollars uh, Which is really funny. Like some people do that. It's incredible like how Some people will go in and like they seem they must enjoy that pretending to be uh, to be somebody else um, And the second one things didn't quite line up and I'm actually really glad that it didn't line up and I sense that mm, something's not quite right and that was you know autumn 2021 like late 2021, which would have been a terrible time to start a VC fund. (laughs) I can't think of a worse time to start, also a VC fund that we wanted to have denominated in ETH, like that would have been just terrible. Everybody would have lost all their money. (laughs) So so I'm glad we didn't.
0: (laughs) Maybe the sign from universe that you shouldn't do it. How important is Daniel for the, you mentioned product market fit. I also heard this concept that there is a concept product market founder fit. How is the founder fit important in this equation?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, if as a founder, you're not actually excited by the product, then I mean, that can still work. You can figure out ways to convince yourself to get excited enough, especially if you have like uh, if if it feels like if you need the business. to Like, for example, if I take Groundtree, I think there was a fit between me and the customer base, especially early on, because we we're working mostly with startups and I love working with startups. But there was also some ways that it didn't quite fit. It was a services business. I was more a technologist. I was pro- mostly a programmer at that point. I was I was the CTO of my last two startups before that, and um, it's um, actually and, and and the industry, uh, particularly R tax rate, this was very competitive and very kind of uh, dirty. I would say like there's a lot of really crappy players. Like it's kind of like the sort of uh, I don't know if you know the ppi type stuff um uh, for those who don't know this it's basically like one of those um schemes that where the government offered some kind of ref- it's kind of like you know people like uh, uh, accident insurance lawyers calling you up and stuff there's a bit of that kind of vibe in the industry so not a very good fit for me I, like i really didn't want to be in that industry but then i realized well this business is taking off it is doing quite well like clearly the numbers are speaking for themselves It is an opportunity to like up my level of financial freedom substantially can i find an angle where this makes sense for me and so i found the fit there which was well okay like it is a it's not an industry that i particularly care about but i care about a number like a good portion of the customers and also i think we can do it better than those guys so we can be the honest people in this industry like, like actually have integrity and transparency and all these kind of things and so that was that was our approach and for example uh, in, uh, in, in, an in in an industry that was super secretive about everything we were, we were the first ones to publish our pricing transparently like it was a kind of industry where you have to call to find out what the price is we just had the price on the website uh, and they were all very secretive about like you know how to actually do the work and we we're like no here's here's the here's the the here's some explanation about how to do the work and we published that on our blog and uh, people liked that and connected to that so you can find so you can find the, the, the fit for yourself to some extent, I think. Eventually I drifted away from Grand Tree because also because it wasn't quite the right fit for me in the long term. Um,
0: but still in the short term, it kind of broke and you learned a lot of valuable experience and I think also like, this thing about transparency, one of the reasons maybe you're so vocal about it in the NFT space mm-hmm. is because of that experience. And you're trying to say, okay, it shouldn't happen there. It shouldn't also happen here. So there's always good things that you can bring over.
1: Um, well, it's like, um, I mean, transparency is, it's is a funny one because it's a kind of like, it's a value that we fell into almost by accident. And at the same time for both me and my wife, and who was the co-founder of Tree, or she was really the main founder of Gruntree, um, it's such a natural value for us. Uh, we sort of fell into it by accident and it totally made sense. Um, because we had, um, like when it was just the two of us, we we're obviously transparent about everything because it's just the two of us. Then we had one person in India who's gonna help me with the admin and like some claim preparation stuff. So I wanted them to have access to the the, all the stuff. It's just a two person company, who cares? Like, you know, it doesn't matter hiding all these numbers. Then the next person we hired, I wanted them to be uh, an ops director type person. I Like we hired, we went out to hire a client manager, a junior client manager. And we ended up hiring a guy with six years of client management at UBS and a Cambridge degree. And we're like, OK, this guy is more like a ops director type person. So he'll grow into that that role. So I'm not going to go and hide data from him. I want him to get access to as much as possible. So he had full access to everything. And the next person we hired was uh, a, a proper admin person to take care of the, the invoicing and all that kind of stuff um, and the expenses and all, all this stuff. So they needed access to everything. And then the next person we hired was a salesperson who technically didn't need to have access to everything. But he was also somebody who had quite a, quite a big ego, and I, like many salespeople do, and um, I kind of sensed that it would go quite, down quite badly if um, I said to him like, okay, everyone else has access to everything except for you. <laughs> You're the only one who doesn't have access. He wouldn't take that very well. And plus I was like, well, let's just give it a go and see what happens. And what actually happened is that transparency transformed our business because it created like we had everything transparent, including salaries and uh, like, like we didn't hold any any business data back from our own employees. And that meant that issues that would otherwise be hidden and kept secret had to be resolved and got discussed. And that helped us improve much better. And it reinforced my belief that transparency is a really positive force and the more transparency there is, the better. One of the benefits of blockchains actually is their transparency. You you don't have to trust somebody else. Um, I like like to compare it to the scientific revolution. Before that, you have the priests who know the truth from the divine and you have to take it on trust that they're telling you the the truth that they got from God or from the Bible or whatever. And then you have the, the scientific revolution where suddenly you can go and verify yourself. You can climb on the tower and drop two stones and see for yourself that they fall at the same rate. You don't have to trust anyone. You can just verify yourself and blockchain kind of does something similar. You can go and verify yourself what's written in the blockchain. You don't have to take the trust. trust.
0: I love that that metaphor. It's so good. I'm Mm -hmm. going to use it definitely a lot in the the future. That's awesome. Um, Daniel, what are the important skills for a founder? Especially like, let's say, like, you know, you, you have an idea, you want to make it to a point that you reach product market fit. What are the core skills you need from, for example, here's example? It seems like there was someone really great at sales, you know, mm-hmm. and there's someone that is really good at, let's say, building whatever product is necessary for that. Is that just these two or do you need some other core skills to get a product or startup to that level, let's say?
1: So, so, So the skills, basically, I mean effectively that depends on the startup um there's going to be some companies that split things differently but a very common generic split that you encounter in a lot of startups is like traditionally is the business guy and the technology guy and the business guy does like all the sales and like marketing and the administration all these kind of businessy things and the technology guy builds the technology that's a very very common in startups more generically, you've got a kind of like what we had in grand tree like a, a salesy type person and a buildery type person and That makes sense actually from the perspective. Uh, I don't know if you've encountered Paul Graham who's uh, kind of the grand uncle of the startup scene and uh, He wrote about the maker schedule versus the manager schedule and it's very difficult to like when you when you're doing sales you need to be on a kind of um, a manager schedule where you're highly available to anybody who wants to interrupt you because you 're doing sales, so if a sales lead comes in, that can be the most important thing to deal with right now, and you can't really say okay i'm going to focus on this thing for four hours now because you might miss on the leads if you do that, so you need to be very reactive and flexible, but for anybody who's done any kind of development or any work that likes in the work that involves sitting in front of a computer and you know working with spreadsheets and writing things and Uh, or coding or that sort of stuff, you need to be able to concentrate for extended periods of time. So the two tend to be fairly incompatible. So usually you do need one person who's going to do the stuff that takes a long time and one person who's going to do the stuff that uh, requires uh, you to be easily interrupted. Um, There are some solo founders. They exist. Some of them are successful, but they're more rare usually. Um, They tend to have lower success rates as well because it's very difficult to balance those two things.
0: Because they're um, connecting um, each other, basically. Like you need someone that is, you know, can focus on something and deliver it. And then if you want to interrupt that person constantly, then he cannot focus on what is necessary to be done. So it doesn't work by itself, I think. Yeah, and, yeah. and,
1: and as a salesperson, you have to allow yourself to be interrupted all the time because that's your job. So you, if you're the salesperson and the product person, it becomes very difficult to actually figure out how to do this without sacrificing one or compromising basically on both of them typically. And then in terms of skills, like which what do you need to build well that depends on the startup, that depends on the business. In the case of tree, for example, what was needed was somebody with a very good in-depth understanding of technology, an ability to write and communicate clearly, an ability to understand all the rules of HMRC and like so that's the tax authority in the UK, like read through 400 pages of regulations about um, uh, R&D tax credits and understand where the edge cases are, like how to, how to make use of them and so on, and be able to turn all that into claims that could be filed with HMRC to recover some money for the, for the, the, the businesses. Um, and on the sales side, it requires the, like, the usual abilities to form relationships, particularly with technical uh, people because uh, a lot of those founders are themselves technical. And the kind of persistence to go and do that, while well, again, like uh, having no credentials, no no formal qualifications for any of this, which is quite a tall order uh, for um if you if you're building a tech startup, for example, or like as in like well, if you take my previous business, uh, the one before that, Wubius, that was a collaboration tool for architects. The um, the skill the building skills were more around programming then. It was about building a tool and like the UX and uh, UI design and the, the back-end design as well to deal with fairly large number of relatively large files. Um, and on the front end, it was about, again, sales, but a different kind of sales because architects are very different, very different crowds to uh, tech startup founders. So the skills are very dependent on the, on the startup. But generally, one way to look at it is basically you need a way to close that loop. And then a way to sort of scale that loop is, an, is is another way to look at it. Like you need to find customers to put through that loop to like, you know, deliver, like build value, deliver to them and get paid. And then you need to find more customers. So if you start with a loop, you can then work out what are the skills you need to complete the loop, which typically will involve finding a customer and building something of value at some point.
0: Yeah, I think some parts of it is generalized, as you mentioned, but yeah, some parts of it depends on the business, but again, I always consider it as there is someone who needs to think about building something. It can be programming or it can be, you know, some sort of other building, and there's something who needs to sell it, business development, all of that to bring customers to the loop and try to figure out let's say, the pricing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Also related to this, because, okay, so I this thing that you mentioned, I know that it kills a lot of startups. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. One other aspect that I think is, I mean, also like Web3 founders and Web2 founders, I kind of see them in a similar bucket because it's, um, it's it's the same thing, basically. You're trying to kind of build something and put it in the hand of some users and um, deliver them some sort of a value. And one of the issues I have seen, and also you mentioned it in your YouTube channel, is some people have a really short time horizon. They don't have a long-term horizon. Mm-hmm. how How do you see this aspect? And how important is it to have at least a 10-year vision for you as a, as an
1: entrepreneur? I mean, I don't think, uh, I mean, it depends what you're considering there. I don't think you need a 10 year vision to do a startup. Um, I think, I mean, it's great if you do have a 10 year vision, but actually that can be a downside. I mean, I've, I've encountered plenty of founders who had a very fantastic 10 year vision, but no ability to execute right now. And so their their stuff sounded really amazing, but they didn't actually deliver anything tangible now. So it never got off the ground. Um, I think entrepreneurs typically need a pretty strong bias towards action, um, which can seem sort of short term. But uh, in the case of entrepreneurs, hopefully it's in the service of building something that has lasting value. It's not just trying to build something that's going to be valuable this week and then you know the hype dies down and and it's worthless. Um I don't consider that to be entrepreneurship. I think that's something else, whatever it is. Um so I don't think like so as an entrepreneur the 10 year horizon may be a bit misleading. Um as an investor. As an, investor. an, investor, so as an investor it's um it's a bit different. Um there I mean it depends uh, if you're I think 10 years is still a bit maybe too long. That's one of the problems I have with the startup scene at the, the startup funding scene at the moment is that the time horizon of investment in a startup is like you know five to ten years. You don't expect to get anything back for five to ten, and you can't, you can't even sell your shares. And that really sucks because that means that your money is locked up in the startup for five to ten years. And then in the meantime, so many things can go wrong that you know it's um it's just not uh not not, not a great deal for investors, I think. Um but you like if your horizon is you know the price movement in the next week, you're not an investor, you're a trader. You're like that's volatility. That's not like nothing grows that fast in a week. Um, so if things are growing fast in a week, what you're doing is trading or probably gambling uh, rather than investing. Investing means putting money into something when it's got a lot of potential but not a lot of realized value, uh, where you think they're going to realize the value and then waiting until they actually realize the value and then selling it once the value is realized. That's what investing is, I think.
0: Yeah, I think there are nuances to both of them. Uh, the reason I mentioned that, you know, there's a, there, there should be a longer-term horizon for some entrepreneurs is that I totally agree. There should be a sense of urgency that, you know, you need to see that, okay, is there something here or not? I'm, I'm knocking <laughs> on this door, but is there something behind it? So I think you need to have that sense of urgency. But I know that a lot of people are, so short-term thinking that they want to, you know, do whatever is necessary to, uh, for example, even sacrifice their health or sacrifice their relationship, whatever that is. And yeah, in that context, basically.
1: Right. Okay. Yes. So yeah, Uh, (laughs) thanks for reminding me. I have put out a video about this (laughs) very recently. Um, From a startup point of view, from a single startup point of view, you need to focus. uh, You need to focus on actually building the thing from as an entrepreneur as a career there, I think it's helpful to have a longer term focus. Um, the startup industry is fairly bad in that it kind of encourages, I think because that's the interest of investors, encourages startups as founders to think that they have to succeed at this current startup or else that they're a failure. And the reality is, I mean, if you look at my own story, like I failed at two startups before Tree. I'm now my fourth startup. Uh, with a bunch like scattered that were kind of half tried and not even fully started, I don't consider my myself a failure. I would say i've I've succeeded quite well, but it's taken a while and I think if you have the persistence to keep trying, entrepreneurship is not actually that complicated as a skill set um and most people can learn it in fact, if you look around at business owners and entrepreneurs around the world. Like, not everyone is running a really sexy business that's going to be the next Dropbox or Facebook or whatever. But many people are running businesses and they're not necessarily that smart, but they are pretty persistent. That's one of the common qualities they have. They they just keep keep going and they keep trying and they get better at the skill set of starting a business. Um, And that, to me, is a really good long term bet and it kind of mirrors a meme that is in the crypto space where you know, it says that all you have to do to make it is to survive. So don't go and do sort of degen gambling bets of like, you know, 125x leverage there and like, you know, and lose all your money because then you don't survive. Um, But if you manage to just hold your hold on to your Bitcoin for 10 years, chances are you will like they will be worth a lot of money by then. I mean, Bitcoin might not have that much of a multiple left. Even there is going to be like a few X still probably. Uh, and if you just you know allocate your resources here and there, but don't make too many crazy moves, you can probably make a lot of money from holding your your crypto and not doing all that much with it uh you don't have to be very clever about it you don't have to be a fantastic trader or a visionary you just have to make some sensible bets here and there and not too many of them and uh It's kind of similar with entrepreneurship if you think about it as a as a as a career path you just um like you you want to make sure that each startup that you do is not going to be structured in such a way that if it fails you're done and you're broke and you're on the street and you want to make sure that you can learn and build on each of those startups well obviously giving a good try to each of the startups that you build like you don't want to sort of do a sort of half-assed uh, approach uh, on any of them but if you take that long-term perspective chances are after 10 years of doing this thing, you will be quite good at it and you'll be able to run a successful business. And for most people who are getting into entrepreneurship, I think, which many are like, you know, 20 year olds uh, coming out of university, they want to start a business, getting to a place where they are basically financially independent, even if they are not started the next Facebook is actually a huge success. And if you get that within 10 years, that's a pretty good career. It's a pretty good success. And then from there you can always start another business if you if you really do want to start the next facebook then it's a lot easier to do that from the place where you're like yeah my needs are taken care of i have a nice house i have a family and everything's cool i have money let me start the next facebook now
0: i think trying to work this together is really important because i also love this distinction it's like it's a career first of all so you need to look at it in that perspective and you you need to give every startup that you're starting whatever attention it needs, but again, not at the expense mm-hmm. of, you know, the bigger picture, which is, you know, you want to do this for the next 10 years. So don't sacrifice your whole so much that you don't have the motivation that if it fails, there's a good chance that every end startup might fail. Then you don't even have the motivation to pick it up. And then in your case, you have you have made it, you know, multiple times. So that's the case.
1: Yeah, and I, and yeah, I, got, I, got, kind of, I got kind of lucky with, because uh, like my my girlfriend, so sort of dragged me to my third startup at the point my second one died. I was very depressed about it, so I was kind of like not really motivated for a few months but uh she managed to convince me uh to, to get working on her thing, and that turned out to be a really good idea so I almost didn't make it
0: <laughs> wow wow it, you're even like so close to not trying again, and oh that that's, that's such an important lesson, I think for a lot of people that you know uh. You can fail a lot of times, but you can make it the next time, let's say. So it's just important to have the skills. Um trying to bring and, this point. Actually,
1: to- I just to add something there, like, you know, going back to transparency and integrity and honesty and those kind of things, if you do look at it as a career and you realize that this uh like no, no this startup is not gonna be uh necessarily the one that makes it. And therefore, you're going to need to go like to interact with this startup scene again, maybe raise more funding for your next startup. Um, how you conduct yourself becomes supremely important because those are relationships that are going to serve you or not for the next decade or longer. So if you behave badly, like people, like investors will take a punt on new first-time founders, but they will observe how you behave as a first-time founder. And if you basically rug your investors, uh, as many many NFT project founders have done, like any investor with any sense will just never bet on you again, because why would they bet on somebody with with no integrity? Like you know, it's it's bad enough that they lost their money that they put in the in in your startup. They appreciate that that was the risk and they took a risk. And you know, with first time founders, it's pretty high risk. But they're not going to do that if they think that you know you're not uh, honest. And uh, you you didn't you didn't handle the the, the failure of the startup properly.
0: Probably well, you cannot do anything maybe new in that scene because people also are connected to each other and yeah you kind of have sacrificed your whole career for that basically.
1: Yeah. yeah, people people talk like this is why that to uh, so that guy who was pretending to have a bunch of money it was it was kind of weird because he managed to pull that off for about six months and then we found him out because like he like he promised that he would like invest in our fund and then he disappeared and like we couldn't reach him so we started asking questions and then the network kind of activated and started doing some due diligence on him and then we figured out that he's not at all what he's been claiming to be and he was hanging out in clubhouse rooms and stuff like that giving advice to founders like had this whole persona built as a as a as a uh, family office fund manager It turned out that he was nothing of the sorts <laughs> it's like Okay, well, you're now burned yourself out of the startup scene permanently. Okay, I mean if that's the game you want to play, sure, but you know, it's not going to get you very far.
0: Uh, was that worth it? Probably not, because you have missed all these opportunities to, you know, even you need to start small and then grow this. And but as you mentioned, like, be don't lose your integrity. Let's say because again, it's a long-term journey, so mm-hmm. you need to have that definitely. Um, Daniel, trying to bring home the because we. Briefly talked about, you know, you were interested in the world of Web three and NFTs were super interesting to you. And I really want to get to the point that you mentioned a lot of times in, in your channels, in your YouTube YouTube, in all the content that you produce that NFTs are a new way of, you know, building businesses. Let's say mm-hmm. uh, you mm-hmm. have had this metaphor that NFTs are like papers that I found super interesting. Can you explain mm-hmm. that a bit and how did you come up with that, let's say, um, metaphor?
1: I mean, for me, it's just that I like to explain things to people. And I kept trying to explain to people why I felt that NFTs were so important. And through trying to explain, like, you know, I would, I would sit next to somebody in a pub or something and, like, they ask, what are, you, what are you doing? And I'm like, well, I'm into this NFT stuff. And they're like, what the hell are NFTs? And I tried, to, I tried various explanations. And over time, I iterated to this paper's explanation, which felt like, it's, well, like it, it worked in practice. People seem to get it. When I use that explanation, I, it feels accurate because it's you know, as as per my video. It's a very foundational piece of technology that has so much impact on on so many different things, um, and um, it also explains why uh, it's easy to misunderstand what NFTs are. Because, like for example, I mean, taking papers as an example, you could think if you if if the first thing that you saw uh, papers being used to is to like print pictures of monkeys, you might be like, well papers are pictures of monkeys but no paper is a is much more than just pictures of monkeys that's just why it's being used for right now <laughs> but there's a lot of different uses for that but it's like it's, like, it's, it's kind, it's of, kind like, of like um, uh, with the sales driven thing like you know it's driven by conversations with people the conversation with someone is what get, gets me to come up with a metaphor to try and explain to them and then i just turn that into a video
0: Yeah, exactly. I think these metaphors are really important, especially for the board of Web3, because things are already complicated. So you need to use these metaphors, let's say, to explain for people to bring them over. And then, you know, the potential is hopefully unlimited. And for example, this paper is really interesting because, you know, yes, today they're being used like this, but they have a lot of potential to be used for other things. And for example, I know that you are not a big fan of, let's say, royalties for NFTs because you think that that's not a really good use case for that purpose, but equity is a really good use case for you know, using NFTs for. Um, and also you're starting a company in, in that context. Can I explain a bit why you are doubling down on this as a, maybe the next journey or company you want to build?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's basically... it's. Still following my desires like I After 2021 I was uh, feeling like okay I want to invest in companies that raise funding by NFTs. I can sense why it's a better funding model for for businesses as an investor There's more liquidity. It's easier to uh, uh, it, it, so It's easier to, to but like, the, 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 the amounts are smaller as well So it's easy to make lots of investment in lots of interesting companies and be able to exit them in a reasonable timeline instead of being stuck with the investment for ten years and um so i was hoping that would happen in 2022 but the universe seems to have had other plans in 2022 with the war in ukraine and uh the luna collapse and the inflation and the um, uh three Rs capital and ftx and the recession and all these kind of things like it was a punch-up of a different kind and i guess nobody was interested in building uh, businesses funded by nfts or like building infrastructure for that at that point and uh, it doesn't help that the sec has continued to make lots of uh, hostile noises as they are doing right now as we speak um but uh, at some point i i was i, I would start, through a series of circumstances i ended up recording a nasa academy course a video course in dubai about uh how to invest in nft projects that sort of explained my philosophy of how to invest in nft projects from that I realized that I quite like to um, record myself and like you know read. I, I, I can write stuff and then read it from a teleprompter and it sounds quite natural, and so that's a, a really big bonus. Most people can't do that and sound natural, and um, so I started a YouTube channel and then I was making all those videos and I sort of realized that uh, something wasn't quite right with my videos. And part of what wasn't right with the videos, I started off as a they started off as a kind of extension of my threads. My threads were targeting the NFT market as it was, with all the traders and flippers and so on. And I was doing threads about, you know, the, the state of the market and uh, the, the charts and all these kind of things. And um, the videos were effectively elaborating on more interesting points. I felt around what wasn't working with the NFT market, which effectively, like, a way to summarize those videos is pe- telling people they're wrong, <laughs> and um, like, and sometimes even telling people they're stupid. And people don't like to be told they're wrong and stupid and so for some reason that didn't that didn't resonate with my audience <laughs> so the people who might be a possible target for this the, these videos were not that interested in watching these videos because they didn't want to be told that they're wrong and stupid and um so i reflected on that and i realized yeah i mean that makes sense like nobody is going to be sharing a video that tells them that they're wrong and stupid uh or stupid and um I figured that, well, there is a part of the market, I think, that wants to invest in legitimate startups funded by NFTs. Except the problem is there aren't really any being started at the moment uh, for a variety of reasons, including the legal uncertainty and the f- fact that technology tooling is all built for arts rather than startups and the general um, uh, aroma of scamminess around the NFT space, which turns away many investors and many, many entrepreneurs. Like they want, not want to be associated with that stuff, um, and um, so I was like, okay, well, I can. There's no point in keeping making videos telling people they're wrong because that's not going to resonate. Um, I can pivot to making videos about startups, uh, like about NFT startups, but there isn't really a market right now. There's no, nobody is doing those, so it's kind of like I'm making videos for a market that might exist in a year's time. Um, or I can also try and get that market to, to come into existence. So following my desires, I was like, yeah, okay, that sounds kind of interesting. I could do something like that. And there was the possibility of just putting together a sort of informational site um, and just putting whatever resources I found. But then I thought, well, you know, if the resources as in the, the people, I don't want to start a business all by myself, but if the right people happen to be available, maybe we can look at, maybe we can do a bit more than that. And uh like get closer to a kind of vision of uh Kickstarter on steroids, Kickstarter on steroids using NFTs uh for startups. And the right people just seem to appear out of nowhere. So like the universe telling me, like, yes, this is the idea, like you should be working on that. And it feels like a lot of fun to be doing that. It feels really worthwhile. Um, I said there was a bit of a lack of alignment in Tree before. With this, to me, there's a huge alignment because Effectively the people that I want to help is these early stage founders, which is, are the ones that I love to work with I have never regretted having a conversation with a founder uh, an, Especially an early stage founder of a company. Um, I love helping them make their dreams a reality and um, This is the way that I can really help them one of the very obvious takeaways from running Grand tree is that the number one thing that all entrepreneurs want is money and <laughs> With Grandtree, we had a way to help them get more money once they had already raised some funding and spent some money. We could get them a kind of tax rebate that increased the amount of money that they had. But with this, we can help them with the primary fundraise by creating a new fundraising mechanism. And that feels really exciting. It can create a lot of innovation around the world. It can help fund businesses that, especially businesses started by people who are typically neglected by the current funding um, infrastructure. Like, the current funding infrastructure is very well designed to um, build the next unicorn, like the next Facebook and Airbnb and Dropbox and and so on. And that's great because we need those businesses. They make a big difference. They they change the world in all sorts of positive ways. But most businesses are not going to be the next Facebook, and that's okay. Um, And they need funding as well. But right now, the funding models are not very well designed to support them. And I think NFTs can provide a much better funding model for those by bundling together basically uh, the shares side of things, along with all the stuff that the NFT space has explored, the utility, the emotional connection, the collectability, the community angle, all these things are very beneficial to a a startup business. And if they can be bundled together with shares, they become a really interesting um, instrument to help fund startups by people who are more customers than investors. So a kind of crowdfunding on on steroids, so to speak. Um, And that, I think, is only possible with NFTs. It's only possible because NFTs have made this sort of um, uh, infrastructure so easily available and have created all this interest and this liquidity, which is, you know, maybe the positive side effect of the Ponzi bubble over the last couple of years. I mean, it is...
0: I think maybe sometimes some businesses need to fail so badly that people understand that there is nothing there. And I mean, I got to admire like your persistence on, you know, continuing this path, because even probably the content that you were producing, there's not a lot of audience for it because other people are following all those, you know, get free quickly. And, you know, people who are pumping those also get more views, let's say. So it could be a bit discouraging but
1: yeah yeah i mean yeah. It's, it's quite it's quite frustrating when uh when i see one of those videos that's like oh here's the top 10 hot projects to look out for the next next month and that's like you know in in, in november 2022 when it's like come on who's still following those those kinds of projects um but uh sorry i just need to press a thing here um but um yeah it's um and they're still getting like you know thousands of views and i'm like my videos, which are like so much better than them, why are they getting so few views? It, like, yeah, but it's that's what that's what people want, and it's okay that that's what they want, that's just not what I want to make. And I'm very clear that I have zero interest in serving that market, so I need another market to serve effectively. And since that market isn't there yet, the only way it's going to happen is by me creating it. So,
0: wow. Wow. there you go that's exactly being on the edge of something and i know that there is something here i'm pretty sure like even when we were starting um you know building stuff in the let's say web3 space said oh my god these nfts are the perfect use case for this aspect you know like you can raise funds you can already have access to a global investment let's say you know rather than only being Mm -hmm. in a certain country and the only thing that is kind of you know is putting a bit of a shadow on it? Or maybe two things. First of all, is you know if NFTs are being looked at as a gambling tool, then obviously, you know, everything is mixed together. So good and bad ones are with each other. So it's really hard to distinguish between them. Mm-hmm. And the second aspect is a regulation aspect, which I think we both agree that we need regulation for these things, but it needs to become clear because they're really securities. But let's clarify that and make sure that you know the NFTs are being used for the right purpose, which is this not anything else.
1: Yeah, I mean, with the the, the, regulation, the regulation thing, I think part of the reason why there is this opportunity because there shouldn't be really. This is such an obvious fit that somebody should have built this already a year ago. But I've kind of been reflecting, well, why hasn't anybody built this? And I think it's uh, there's a couple of um, effects that play with each other. One is that um, the space tends to be US-centric to the point where it becomes a blind spot. Most of, I mean, well, there is definitely a lot of liquidity in the U.S., but the U.S. is is not the only market in the world. There's a lot of people with money, with crypto money outside the U.S., and especially given that uh, uh, places like Dubai and so on have so much more um, uh, lax laws around taxes and cryptocurrencies and so on, a lot of U.S. people who wanted to be doing cryptocurrencies have moved outside the U.S. already, because they know that the climate is hostile there. Whether they've moved to like I think Puerto Rico, I've heard, is quite a popular destination. Obviously, there's all the offshore places like BVI or whatever. And there's um, um, Portugal, apparently, is quite a popular destination as well because it had also fairly lax crypto laws. Um, there's so many places for crypto-rich people to live other than the U.S. And yes, yeah, some of them are still going to choose to live in the U.S., but you know, it's, it's not just the U.S. And then you know, Europe, to take a simple example, is a very wealthy continent. There's a lot of wealth here. Um, and um, here the regulators are a lot more sensible than, like, the SEC is. I, so from what I'm reading in the news, seems to be quite irrational about how they're approaching, or maybe rational but evil. That's another another, another possibility. Um, but I, from what you read in the news, it doesn't seem like they're very uh, they're, they're very easy to work with. Um, although apparently you can still work with them if you approach them the right way, according to a lawyer. Uh, it just takes a couple of years and you know uh, a certain amount of money to like have the right conversations with the right people um but you can basically uh in Europe you can find regulators that will allow you to issue security tokens uh, and will like the regulation is not overly onerous it can be done, and so you can get the regulation you you can get the work with the regulators to issue something that is legitimate and fine, and then the Perspective seems to be that most other um, uh, Countries other than the US and China Will tend to like as long as it is regulated by a regulator and it's filed the right paperwork there They and it's not you know an obvious massive scam They probably won't care that uh, This that, that some of their citizens are also buying this stuff so long as it's not being directly marketed to them so for example the FCA in the UK if you're going to put adverts in the tube and like, you know, go and do a marketing campaign in the UK for your security base in Germany, well, they'll take exception to that. But if there's just a website in Germany and UK people can access it, if it's not a massive thing, they've got better things to do than, than follow that up. So there is space to operate there if you get rid of the blind spot of being only US focused, and if you realize that you can work with the regulators to sort this out. And that's what we're, that's what we're doing with Pledger.
0: Yeah, I mean, there seems to be ways. I mean, probably people looking outside, they said, okay, there's a lot of gray area, but based on your experience, it seems like there are, even today, there are ways to explore this. So maybe the best call to action here is if there is any founder that is listening to this and want to, you know, explore NFT as a fundraising mechanism,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. I think they should reach out to you and then, you know, probably you can learn from them, uh, guide them something and maybe... They can, you know, fundraise, it's probably one of the most important things that a startup founder needs to do. So I think that's going to be super valuable and helpful. Yeah, and, yeah. And if you want to
1: get in touch with me? Uh, I'm Swambat on Twitter, and uh, my DMs are not open on Twitter. But if you, <laughs> okay, the way to the way to find me quickly right now is if you look on my Twitter, there is a YouTube channel linked, and in the description of all the videos there, there is a link to the Discord. So that would be the quickest way to find the Discord, and my Discord DMs are open, so you can easily contact me there, or just you know find your way to Discord and DM me there, or at me on Twitter, and I, I tend to read like I'm not that popular yet that I get drowned in uh, in uh, mentions, so I usually read all my mentions, so I'll get back to you if you say, hey, can you please DM me? Uh, so follow me and and, and 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 mention me, and I'll I'll reply to you. That's another way. And I'm generally very happy to have a conversation with any founder who's trying to build a legitimate business where they, they, like, which I think even in the NFT space, I think a large number of founders there wanted to build something really good. They just followed bad patterns set by basically bubble, Ponzi bubble scams. And uh, they created uh, what I like to call unintentional Ponzi's, which, you know, the founders are not necessarily to blame because they didn't really set out to do that. But they ended up creating that because of the patterns that were set. Oops. Um, because of the patterns that were set because of the, um, uh, the, the fear of doing anything securities like, and all these kind of blind spots and beliefs in the NFT space that caused people to just steer the wrong way. Uh, and I'm happy to have conversations with people to help them, um, see things differently.
0: I mean, as, as you mentioned, we need to look at things in a different way. And when there's all these scams going on, then even I think legitimate people that want to start something in the NFT space, they look at bad practices, not even like scammy practices. But for example, they will go and do, try to do whitelist to people and people are going to be whitelist hunting or I don't know, talking about airdrops. Are they, those are not sustainable.
1: <laughs> no, 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 no. And, and I would say the royalties uh, to link back to that is also bad practice. The idea of using royalties as your business model is just terrible. It just doesn't doesn't add up at all. Um, but like, there's been so, such a like laundry list of things that the NFT space has done, like the staking, the the token launches that are completely meaningless. The um, the airdrops is also airdrops can make sense in some context, but generally are used as a more Ponzi basically um all the floor manipulation techniques that have have been in place whether it's uh rewarding people for not listing stuff or uh or in some cases penalizing people for listing stuff or like you know all sorts of nonsense like that and you got to get away from all that stuff and it's very difficult to do that if you're listening to the people who are in the nft space because a lot of them say like oh yeah this is how you need to build an nft project and i mean they're right in that this is how you need to build an NFT project in the middle of a bubble if you want to take advantage of the hype bubble. But if that's not what you want to do, then you should probably ignore most of what the NFT space has pioneered. Um, and, let, like, oh, and, and think very carefully about which bits you import into your project. Because there are some things that are really amazing. And... There are ways that the, like, for example, the, um, like, NFTs are really good at bringing people together, at getting people to collaborate or at aligning incentives, um, much better so than uh, fungible tokens, I think. And uh, so that is a pretty cool, pretty cool thing worth importing. And the collectability, for example, is also something that I think um, is um really uh, like a really positive uh, element of um of nfts um like the fact that you can sort of gamify the the investment process and make it so instead of just getting a number in a spreadsheet you get a bunch of pictures that you can trade and collect and have fun with that's a plus and that's worth importing that's not a negative um but it's like but you know it's difficult for people who aren't, well, it's difficult for anybody, really, but basically it's difficult to tell the difference between the stuff that should be important and the stuff that should be just thrown in the garbage.
0: There is something here. There is something here, I'm sure, and we just need to remove all the noise and get to the core of, you know, what this technology is for. Mm -hmm. I think Mm -hmm. we are doing that, so that is amazing. Uh, Daniel, any last words from your side?
1: Um... Well, if you'd like to follow this journey of developing uh, NFT as a fundraising mechanism, um, and in particular, all our, all our bits of fun getting uh, the regulations to work and then eventually expanding to the US. And if you'd like to maybe participate at some point, we will be raising funds and probably buy selling an NFT. Uh, do head over to pledger.com. That's pledger um, spelled with a three instead of the second E. So P-L-E-D-G-3-R. And uh, right now it's a very basic site, but if you put your email in there, uh, you'll get updated on um, what we're up to and find out when we start doing some fundraisers, uh, in particular when we start launching legitimate startups, raising funds via NFTs, where when you buy the NFT, you actually get shares in the business as well as the benefits and the collectibles and all that. Um, so that would be my my final words, I guess. Uh, um, uh what do you call it Shilling my uh <laughs> shilling my new startup which if you have if you listened that, listened that, okay. okay
0: exactly exactly <laughs> i'm rooting for that i will also mm. share mm. all the links for your project in the description so please check them out thank you so much daniel okay. and we'll see okay. you guys in the next one
1: cheers cheers, cheers.